to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy, and we welcome you all uh, to this special day for the Shorenstein Center. Uh, we are very, very pleased and proud to have as our guest speaker today, Charles M. Blow. Um, many of you, perhaps like me, uh, first became aware of Charles because of his graphics work for the New York Times. He came to the New York Times as a graphics man and very quickly uh, essentially became the graphics director of the New York Times and designed many sort of very fascinating op-eds in the form of graphics for the op-ed page, especially during 9-11. That's when it really became something that, uh, that, was pe that people noticed. But rather extraordinarily, he then migrated to becoming one of the columnists on the most important, I think arguably anyway, uh, op-ed page in the United States. And that is a uh, transition that is something I don't think any other, uh, certainly any graphics designer or columnist that I know has ever made. Most recently, he has written a terrific book, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, a memoir. It is his story about his life, uh, about his childhood, about the traumas of that childhood and how he has come to view them. You may have seen his extraordinary article in the New York Times, which was derived from the book. Um, I can tell you that I've had two people today tell me that it's one of the best books they have ever read. And uh, I think that um, we are very, very proud and honored to have Charles M. Blow here at the Shorenstein Center. Welcome, Charles. Thank you. Thank you. Do I talk here? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Right. Thanks for this lovely box, by the way. <laughs> so I, I found out a, a few minutes ago that I'm supposed to talk about media-related things. So I'm going to talk about how I got into journalism and how that, you know, how that all worked out. Well, I had no desire whatsoever to become a journalist, had no intention of becoming a journalist. Um, I had always... Uh, had an affinity for newspapers because my mother had an affinity for newspapers. That was, even when we were the, the poorest, the one thing that she would never give up was a home delivery of the local newspaper. And she would read it from cover to cover. She watched no television except the news and Wheel of Fortune. Um, and a couple of shows that she would watch sometimes when, when we would be doing chores in the house. But um, she was a newspaper woman and she, she, that's how she considered herself. And there was a mini page in a newspaper uh, which was a kids section that came once a once a week, and it was literally one page. And she would save it for me, and so I'd I'd be lying down next to her, and she'd be reading her full newspaper, and I'd be playing at my mini page. And uh, so I I liked it, um, but it was not uh, something that I even considered. I <clears throat> when I was uh, in high school, I decided that I wanted to be the governor of Louisiana. But that was that was the, the penultimate um, goal, and it was because we had gone. There was this um, uh, the 
I think it's Hugh O'Brien Foundation, um, and they had uh, th these kind of uh, sessions all around the country, and 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 what they would do is get get the kind of leadership structure of a high school and you'd nominate one person from a high school and everybody goes show up at the hotel somewhere. We showed up at a hotel near the airport in Shreveport and it's kind of like this cultish experience and they make you say like a thousand times a day, to be enthusiastic you must act enthusiastic. And you say literally a thousand times a day I swear. Um, and but they introduce you all around town and you meet all the the leadership and you know media business everything. And one of the days, they took us to the state capitol in Baton Rouge, and um, they, they, we have a tour guide, and they us around the capitol buildings, and it is dawning on me that this the, everybody here is crazy and having a blast, because they're just giving you all these great stories, like, you know, you know, this governor was shot right here, and here's where the bullet went into the wall, and, you know, this governor was committed to an insane asylum by his wife because he wanted to help the blacks, and he got out and got enacted revenge on everybody who put him away, and, and I'm thinking, my God. Um, and the, later in the day, we are asked to come to, to the governor's mansion to meet the current governor. And we file into this, you know, beautiful receiving room, and uh, in strolls the then governor of Louisiana, who is Edwin Evers, who is now running again, by the way. Um, and this is right after Edwin Evers, Edwards had delivered this great line, which he has a million of. Uh, but he had delivered this great line, joking to reporters. Um, you know, the only way I could win this, they could lose this election, is if I get caught in bed with a live boy or a dead girl. And he was right because he won. Uh, and because Louisiana loves scoundrels and we love party people. Before this guy, you know, uh, Jindal, I don't know what happened, but um, but they love this kind of, you know, gingerbread man, catch me if you can't think. Um, and so I decided in that moment, like, I want to be that guy. Like, I want to come down here and have a blast like the rest of these governors. Uh, so I decided that I'm going to be, uh, I want to be the governor of Louisiana. And so I go away to college. I major in um, English and pre-law because I figure the best way to become a politician is to first become uh, a, a lawyer. And so that would be my stepping stone. I'd do that and I'd jump to, um, to politics. And um, that all seems to be working out. And, and one year, the, um, the, I don't know how the CIA does this, but the CIA was coming to our campus every year to recruit. And they would come into our classrooms to recruit. I don't know if that's even kosher, but they would come into the classrooms and they'd give so like a spill, like a history class or something. And we joke with them and they joke with us about how they can't tell us things or they have to kill us, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, but they, they became very interested in me. I was president of my class and I, was, I had good grades in college. And 
I think they were kind of interested in this idea that, you know, this kid's bright and he's, he doesn't have real connections, he's from nowhere, he's a perfect blank slate kind of a character. And, and I was interested in him, not because I wanted to be a spy, like I didn't want to wear like a trench coat and sneak around in the shadows, but I wanted, uh, I thought it would be great to have on the resume of a person who went to law school and wanted to be a politician. And so we go back and forth to this kind of uh, over mail with him, and then I get to the final rounds of the interview process, and you have to go to, they summon you to Virginia to do the last rounds of quizzing and, and tests and what have you. And I'm breezing through this thing. I, I know that I have it locked down. And, um, and one of the last things I remember anyway, maybe the last thing of, of the process was the, you have to take a lie detector test, which I was like, fine, I mean, I don't wanna, I'm not lying, I'm not lying to anybody. So they hooked me up to this machine and um, he's going through the questions and I'm just answering, it's not a big deal. And he gets to, there are two questions that come up that kind of throw me. One is, have you ever used drugs before? Which I had, hadn't done and still have it to this day. Um, but when I was in high school, I shared a locker with my two best friends and they kept that locker stuffed with marijuana. Like, because it was the locker, it was the, I don't know which of our lockers it was, but it was closest to the, the lunchroom in the class right before lunch. So we would just throw our things in that locker and run to the lunchrooms to get there on time and so I always thought okay this is not good you know but and I had a lot of guilt around the idea that I knew there was marijuana in this locker and I'm putting my things in this locker so that was there and also in college I was in a fraternity and they smoked a tremendous amount of marijuana and like you know you know you in a room and you can't see your hand kind of smoking marijuana like and I was convinced that I had gotten a contact high. I was always thinking, oh, I know I'm high, I get out of this room because I can't, if I can't see my hand, I certainly can't breathe clean air. So, uh, so he asked the question and I say no, and I can hear the machine scratching. <laughs> and so now I'm trying to like recover, now I'm like the sweat starts and you freak out and I'm trying to recover from that. And then he asked another question, um, which is, have you ever had sex with a man? This is, they, they, these questions are designed so that you, um, you can't be um, uh, blackmailed, right? So you should, whatever secrets you have, you should be able to tell them so that you'll be able to tell anybody else. And uh, because I had childhood sexual abuse in my past, and I hadn't even thought about it in you know, years, and and all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, but it was an older cousin. He's not, he's not an adult. It's not consensual. Was it really even such? I mean, I'm trying to ask all these questions in my head, but there's, a, I'm strapped to this thing. So even before I can get the answer, I can hear this thing start scratching. And so, and I say no, and it's like, so I'm like, ah. So when it's over, I turn to the guy and I just, you know, I never talked about that to anyone. And I'm talking to this guy who were basically in a closet. There's no, room, no windows in this room. And he is completely uninterested. He does not care. You just failed. Get out of my office. Like, that's what he's, that's the look he's giving me. 
But he does acquiesce and he says, okay, fine, you can do it again. So he gives me a test again. So I get to the same question and this time I just say, well, if no gives a, a lie response, I'll just say yes. So I say yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, oh my God, like, so there is no answer here. Uh, and it kind of, you know, there's so much you, that happens with unresolved kind of issues around childhood sexual abuse, and that was the anxiety that was built up around it. And I thought, kind of foolishly, naively, at that moment, I said, you know, to myself, well, of course, now I can never be a politician because now the government thinks that I'm a liar, not knowing that that's all the politicians do. Um, but so I went back to school, and I, uh, I had. In, in the intervening years, I had um, shifted my major from English, one of my majors from English to mass communications at the, re at the suggestion of an English professor who really liked my writing, who apparently hated his job. So <laughs> he, he had, I had written this essay, you know, you put things off to the last minute. So I, it was, it was a, the assignment was to produce an essay, a personal essay. And we had maybe two weeks to do it. Not writer's blog, writer's blog, doing something else, doing something else. It's the night before the things do. So I stay up in t to the middle of the night, like students do. Um, and back then, we didn't have five-hour five hour energy drinks, so we had like no-dose, remember those pills? Uh, we had no-dose, Dr. Pepper, and I used to like to load myself with sugar, so I would, those little mini donuts with the coconut on them, those, so I had all that lined up, all of my accoutrement uh, lined up, and I'm like popping this stuff and getting my sugar hot, and I'm typing, because there were no laptops, so I'm typing into the middle of the night, uh, and as the sun's coming up, I'm finishing, and I ripped the last page out of the typewriter, not even proofread, this thing's probably littered with grammatical errors. Uh, rip it out of the typewriter, rush to class, and a couple weeks go by, and he returns to class, and he says, he's one of these big lyceum classes, so maybe 200 people there, and we're all kind of chatting with our neighbors, and he says, he passes back the test, he said, one of these essays really stood out to me, and I want to take the class to read it, just, class opportunity to read it to you. And I'm chatting with someone and I, he starts to read and I realize he's reading my essay. And he asks to see me after class and he says, oh, so, so now what do you want to do um, with life? And I told him about this governor thing and going to law school. <laughs> and he, uh, he says, so what if you don't go to law school and you graduate with this English degree? What are you going to do? Become a teacher? So that's why I knew he hated his job. What are you going to do? Become a teacher? He said, <laughs> with disdain. Um, and he says, why don't you um, shift that major to mass communications? Because that way, you'll still get a chance to write. And, um, you'll, and if you graduate and you don't choose not to go to law school, you'll have a, kind of a, a trade. And it makes perfect sense to me. I'm all of 18 years old. Um, so I, I go into the mass comm group and we in that major we had to choose a concentration one of them was the visual concentration which was a new idea at the time this is like 1988 89 um, and drawing and all things visual had always come easy to me and I never thought of it as a career but I just my thought 
processes were simple. The same reason that I wanted to become a governor, which I'd go out and party like the governor who was down the party. I decided that I was going to go into visual communications because that, that way I would keep my scholarship and I would still be able to go to all the parties because it was easy. <laughs> and so I, I mean, it's, you know, the rationings of a child. Um, so I choose visual communications. And so I'm, after the CIA debacle, I come back to school and I realize, oh, now you actually have to do this visual communications thing. So, um, and we had a, a, a professor, I mean, a, a working journalist come to our class once and she uh, also, I don't think, liked her job very much. I was around a lot of people who didn't like their jobs. And she, she was going on and on about like how journalists don't make money. And I remember her saying, she says, the, I don't know if it was the average entry level or something, a uh, journalist makes $24,000. I literally excused myself from the class and went to the bathroom and threw up. I, could, I just kept saying, I cannot be poor. Like, I can't go to college and emerge like poor. I've been poor my whole life. Um, but I just threw myself into the, into the idea that I was going to have to do this newspaper thing. I have to do it well and just worry about the money later. And so I begged the local newspaper that summer to give me an internship in the graphics department. And they finally uh, did that. And, they, and I realized that I had a skill set that was new and interesting at the time. This is kind of around the time of the birth of USA Today and Time Magazine was using a lot of visual components. And I was this weird creature who, you know, uh, could write, had been trained as a journalist, but also knew how to do this kind of uh, visual design stuff. And so for newspaper people, that was, it was kind of revolutionary and it was all by fluke. Um, and I did so well that summer, they gave me a, a part-time job and one of the editors there became my kind of a mentor of sorts. He was a business editor and one, um, Day he came over and said, you know, the New York Times is having this job fair in Atlanta and you really have to go. And, I, and I'm thinking, I can't go, I have things to do. But he said, no, you, you have to go. So I just begged a friend of mine who, his girlfriend had just graduated, moved to Atlanta. So I said, listen, here's the deal. I drive us to Atlanta. You get to see your girlfriend. I get to sleep on her sofa. We both win, right? So, so he says, great. So we, we drive to Atlanta, get to the job fair, um, and he drops me off at the door and I walk in and I'm just going to proceed into the job fair, not knowing anything about how job fairs work back then in particular. And the guard, the guy at the door says, you can't come in, you have to register to come to this job fair. And I'm like, are you kidding? I just drove from Louisiana, I'm going into the job fair. What do you have to do? What, is that? what does that mean? He says, there's a fee. I said, how much is it? 40 bucks. I gave him 40 bucks. He says, but you also have to fill out this uh, form and you had to write an essay. I said, do you have a pencil? <laughs> and I sat down and I wrote an essay. Uh, and I handed it to this guy, I said, I'm going in. <laughs> so he, he was kind of taken aback by it, he let me go in. And I go around to each of the, the desks and I think people are kind of impressed. And I get to the New York Times um, booth and they say, well, you can't interview with us because you had to uh, be pre-approved to interview and our, your playlist is full. 
And, you know, I said, I understand that. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit right here until somebody doesn't show up. And I knew it was a stunt, and I knew it would catch my guard, and it was complete. So I sat there for like six hours. I was reading the same newspaper over and over and over, same stories about places I didn't know about. And, but it was great because it had to, you got this great opposition research because every time someone would come, I'd say, you know, hi, how are you doing? They would leave. And then the recruiters would talk about them as soon as they left, like, oh, I really liked him because of blah, blah, blah. I didn't like this one because of whatever. So I'm absorbing all of what they want to hear. Six hours of like opposition research. So by the end of the day, they're folding up their things and getting ready to go. And they say, okay, fine, we'll interview you. So I said, oh, thanks. And I sit in the chair, now I know exactly what to say. And I'm just like spitting it out, spitting it out, spitting it out. And they, I get to the end of the interview and they say, you know, this is very impressive. I'm like, of course it is, because I know what you want to hear. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they say, but we don't have a graphics internship. And I said, well, that's okay, you know, and I understand, but I appreciate you uh, letting me interview. And I just, I genuinely was happy that the New York Times thought this little country boy from the middle of nowhere was impressive. And I walked out and the next day I came back and I was trying to make up ground for all the places that I had missed the day before sitting at the New York Times booth instead of interviewing in other places. And every place I went they would say, then you know the New York Times is looking for you. But I was not excited about this because I just assumed that I had done some like klepto thing and like picked up a pen or something. <laughs> so I'm searching my body for pens. There's no pen. Uh, so I get back to the New York Times booth and they say, well, we didn't have a graphics internship, but we were so impressed with you that last night we called back to, to New York and we made one just for you. So I became the New York Times first graphics editor, uh, a graphics intern. Um, but for me, the, I mean, the question is always like, how do you go from graphics to writing? But, but in my mind, it was always how I went from wanting to be an English major to graphics, which was a complete fluke. Like, it, in a way, coming back to writing was the most natural path for me. Um, and I went to the Times and I uh, did the internship, went away to Detroit News for, I counted in winters, I counted one and a half winters because no human being should live in that kind of temperature. Um, and I and I come back to the Times because uh, after when the next winter was setting in, I said, okay, we have to get out of here. Uh, my wife then, and we had a, a small child, and I got internship Boston Globe, in uh, New York Times, and Philadelphia Inquirer, and, and you know, I don't know what all this gutsiness came from, but I was really gutsy back then. And so I told all of them, I said, this is how we're going to do this. Instead of like saying, thank you for letting me come to the interview, I said, this is how we're going to do this. You're going to fly me to that interview, you're going to fly me to the next interview, and you're going to fly me to the next interview and back home. And they did it. So they were they were they were putting they were interviewed me put me on a flight I did all this in like in one weekend, uh, and uh, I interviewed all of them and they all offered me a job. But I said okay if the New York Times says yes I'm going back to the Times. So I went back to the Times as a graphics uh, uh, editor, and uh, I was only there for like a year, and the and our the graphics chief left, and they. But they were kind of dragging their feet about re name a replacement. Um, and 
one day I got tired of that, all of 24 years old. Uh, and I just said, this, I don't like this. And I went down to Joe Lelleville's office and then knocked on the door. And, uh, and I didn't knock on the door. I talked to his assistant. I said, I need to speak to Joe. And she said, well, he's not in right now, but I can put you on his schedule. You know, what is it about? I said, I just need to talk to him. And she said, okay. I put, she put me in like a week or so later. And then I went home and calmed down. I said, oh, my God, you just lost your job because what are you going to say? You, you're too hot-headed. Why do you keep doing this? So you know, now I'm on the schedule. So I'm like fretting for a week that I have to go in and talk to Joe Lelleville because I went down in a huff, demanded to be put on his schedule. <laughs> Uh, about them filling this job that they've left open for six months. And the, you know, the day comes, I put on my best little cheap suit and tie, and I go in and I just, you know, he says, well, what's, the, what's going on? And I said, well, they give him the spill. You know, it's not fair. You, you, you would never leave any other department without a, a, a head, uh, a chief, that that person is our advocate. We don't have one, and we need one. And you should do this. And I don't care who it is, but just make someone to chief. I was not trying out for a job. I literally wanted a boss. And he, I'm not sure you even heard what I said. He was so taken aback by the fact that I was, had the nerve to come to talk to him about it. And that's all he said. You know, people are so afraid of me that no one ever comes to talk to me. And so he started to say, well, what do you think the person, the quality of this person should be, should have? And I said, I don't know, it, you know, just be some management experience. I don't know. Uh, just give me a boss. Um, and then a week goes by and my boss calls me in and says, Joe wants to talk to both of us. So I'm thinking maybe I said something wrong in the meeting and maybe I should have done what I did. And maybe I should have gone over your head. I should have gone to you. And so uh, Joe, <laughs> he calls us. He calls us back down, and we're waiting outside of his office, and um, my boss kind of leans over to me. He says, how old are you? And I think I'm like 24, 20, I don't know, 24, my birthday, but it's like the month before my birthday. I say, I'm, I'll be 25 next month. Says, I, I'm 24, but I'll be 25 next month. He says, say you're 25. <laughs> And so we walk into his office and Joe goes, you know, we thought long and hard about this and we'd like to make you the new graphics director. And I'm so stunned by it uh, that I don't even take the job. What do you say? I said, well, I, I have to go home and talk to my wife about this. <laughs> because I didn't know what that even meant. Because everyone, I was literally the youngest person in the department. Uh, maybe one of the youngest people at the time, on, full, on staff at the time, at the time. And uh, I go home and my ex, my then wife says, of course you're taking it, are you crazy? Uh, so I go back the next day and say, fine, I'll take this job. And I become like the youngest department head that they had ever had. There was one other guy who was a bureau chief in Paris who apparently was the same age, but he had one employee, so I don't count him. Um, <laughs> I had like 30. Um, so I, I, you know, so I'm, I do this job for a very long time. And, um, and I would say to people, you know, the only reason I would ever leave the New York Times is to go to National Geographic because I was in visual communications. And it just seemed like the cool thing to say. And I would always like National Geographic. But it was kind of a joke until one day 
the art director of National Geographic calls me, who I had never met this man. I talked to him once on the phone trying to get him to come to our to the New York Times to kind of give a speech and to inspire us. Um, and he couldn't do it. He calls me one day. He says, I'm leaving this job and there's only one person in the world who I want to have it and it's you. Do you want it? I'm like, what? How's this happening? And I said, yes, I want it. And so in a, we do a couple of rounds of interviews and in a few weeks, I'm the art director of National Geographic Magazine. So I leave the time to do that. Um, but it was a commute to DC, impossible. It was the beginning of starting, this, starting writing this book though, so I guess it's a good thing. Um, and But Bill Keller, every time he would see me, which he would see me like once every three months or so, it was like he was stalking me. Uh, he would say, Charles, this is ridiculous, you can't commute to DC, you gotta come back to the time. So eventually I just said, okay, fine, Bill, let's have lunch. We had lunch. He says, you know, you have to come back, it's just stupid. Uh, and I said, so to do what? He says, oh, I don't know, what do you think? He says, go away and think about what you would do if you came back to the Times. And so I realized, I knew that being in the art department that um, they did these um, things called op charts at the time. I knew that they were all freelance. I know from management, no one wants to make a new budget line. They wanted to like, shuffle things around, create a job out of existing money. So I just said, okay, fine, I, I get, let's do this. Because there's already somebody who's taken my old job, so I can't knock them out. So I will create the op charts on staff. You take the freelance money, you create a, a, a salary out of it, everybody's happy. Everybody was happy. So I go in to talk to Andy Rosenthal, um, who I'd known forever, and um, it's, it's like a five minute interview. That is not even an interview, it's, not, it's just like a five minute conversation. So he comes in and he says, oh, everybody loves this idea. So uh, you gotta make these charts. So yes, yes. So are you, you gonna introduce them with like type? How, you know, what is the, how, long, how long are you gonna write? Like 400 word introduction? Yes. I didn't know what 400 words was. I didn't know what it felt like. Fine. What are we going to call you? And I had something crazy like op chartist or something. He's like, ah, oh, it's too complicated. Just, who is going to call you a columnist? And, you know, we do this for a few minutes. And then he just says, he takes a phone call. He just kind of waves me out of the room. <laughs> and in five minutes, I kind of walk out of the building. I kind of stand against the wall. I'm like, wait a minute. Did I just become a columnist at the New York Times? <laughs> And I had just become a columnist at the New York Times. It was a completely fluky thing. And, and completely freaked me out. Because I immediately realized that I'm about to kind of embark on the most visible on the job training uh, session in all of journalism. <laughs> let, let me, let me I, I want to open it to questions, but I want to ask uh, just one before. Um, You have some of the most important territory in the world for expressing views and raising issues and yes. so forth. What do you consider to be your areas of interest and how do you decide what you want to write about? Um, I'm tempted to say I just panic until something occurs to me, which is, is partly true. Um, but. Um, <clears throat> People, are, people think of the column as being about, it being a numbers column because I use data as support. 
I don't think of it that way. I think of it as being a column about um, kind of beliefs and behavior and biography, my own biography. And so that informs a lot of what I choose to write about. It is truly an outgrowth of me. It is uh, writing about vulnerable populations. It is uh, writing about social justice. It is um, uh, writing about uh, poverty and how it is lived in America. Um, <clears throat> it is also, uh, I'm fascinated by what we believe, how those beliefs are constructed, how those belief systems um, inform our behavior. So I use a lot of public opinion polling. Um, and, and I, you know, and people often think of of me now, now that Bob Herbert is no longer uh, writing on the page, which I mourn every day. Um, uh, you know, they say, "Well, you are the only black columnist at the New York Times." I look at that slightly differently, and I say, "Well, I'm all I'm the only Southerner writing at the New York Times," and in terms of kind of the writing. Um, and subject matter and um, the kind of literary quality of the column, that matters as much as any racial difference would ever matter. And so I, I often think about subjects that would interest the people who I grew up with. Hmm. I want to open it to questions, but first I'm going to invite uh, students. If you're a student at the Kennedy School, yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of, I bury my head a bit on this subject and um, just try to crank out the column um, because it scares me to death to even try to figure it out. Uh, and I always assume and hope that, you know, the management of the Times is staying up late at night trying to figure this out because you know, the trend lines don't look good to me. Um, uh, more digital, more free. How do you pay for what we do? Um, you know, it, in a kind of self-interested way, and this is not, I don't even think, healthy for journalism, I see a tremendous rise of opinion journalism and that's not reporting. I kind of depend on the reporters to form the opinion. So that balance, if that balance shifts too much, then we just we just have a bunch of pundits yelling and screaming and talking to each other about things they don't know about because they haven't actually um, been the foot soldiers. Um, and I also worry about that we are moving to a point as a, as a general public, where people want more ammunition than information, that, that we want we want ammunition to argue with our 
over the water coolers and over the, the backyard fence. And we want other people to digest it for us and regurgitate it in a form that's soft and, and for enough for us to consume and not do the work ourselves to go, you know, to kind of weed through actual reporting information and to arrive at an opinion about that information. Um, and that kind of societal laziness worries me. Stu, yes. My name is Eugene Scott. I'm here at the Kennedy School. I was a, a reporter for 10 years before arriving here in July. I'm really interested in how you navigate the tension between uh, being a columnist who is black and who is Southern and not the black Southern columnist. Um, well, I mean, one helpful part of that is that we don't get assigned to do things. Right, so the, you are you are a sovereign nation as a colonist. Um, you choose whatever you want to choose, and um, uh, you know the editor does have veto power over it, but they almost never exercise it. So um, you can write about whatever you want, and um, so there's a freedom in that. I think that you know sometimes reporters don't have that freedom, and they do get assigned certain sorts of stories because of their background, what they bring to it, and that can be you can feel pigeonholed because of that. I don't have that experience. Um, that said, um, like I was saying before about you know missing Bob Herbert, I, I some people like being the only one. That there's a this concept of um, in in kind of uh, diversifying groups where you're the only one and that's your special thing. I don't like that. I never grew up like that. So I grew up in a kind of a very segregated town. I went to mostly black schools, uh, all the way from um, elementary school, high school, even college. So the idea that I was the only one was not even part of my consciousness. And the idea that, that the black person wasn't the smartest person in the room was also not part of one of my consciousness. Like, they were. So I don't, I don't bring any of that sort of baggage to my life and to um, my work. I, you know, and, and there's a, there's a freeing, freeing um, quality to that. And when I look at things. I don't look at it and say, if I write about this, I'll be black. I'm a, I've been the black guy for 44 years. That's fine with that. I, and, I, and I love the idea that I could talk about uh, issues that I can talk about with authority, whatever they may be, whatever, whatever part of my biography lends themselves to the, an authoritative take on something. I relish that because part of the columnist experience is passion that you have to have authority and passion in order for people to connect with the column because it is not only the, the, the individual column, but it is the collection of the columns that becomes the, the columnist. And so I, I always think of it in terms of collection, that I am writing to build a grand case that, that equality for everyone is not only right; uh, it is it is the moral imperative um, that that 
that that poor people are not seen in America, that we have, that we, even on racial terms, do not see each other, therefore we cannot empathize with each other, and in the absence of seeing actual people, mythology grows into those blank spaces, and that I bring data to that discussion to, to knock down the, that mythology. I don't mind it. I don't, I don't know how other people view me. I, I don't wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and go, you know, black power. You know, that's not. I just look in the mirror and say, this is this is this is another chance to make a difference and to to bring truth into the conversation around issues that I know well. Students, well, let me just open it up to uh, to anyone who has a who has a question. Uh, let me ask one more, if mm -hmm. I may. How did you discover you had this talent for writing, and how have you sort of trained yourself as a writer? Maybe I'm still discovering <laughs> that, that I have. I mean, for, for years, even while writing this column, I would not call myself a writer. You're a writer. <laughs> I, but I, would, I, I, was a, I, was, I was so afraid of it, I, I, I thought that the other people who worked at the newspaper were writers, and people who wrote books were writers, and that somehow I was an interloper. And so people would say, what do you do? And I would give them this long, rambling explanations for what I did. Um, so I'm just now getting used to, the, to, to being able to say, oh, I'm a writer. You know, so, um, so I'm growing, I'm still growing into that idea, but you know, I, I, part of you know part of becoming a writer is being a reader and reading a tremendous amount and understanding the way that people uh, construct um, uh, the kind of literature and in essay form arguments. Um, and you know there are people who mean a lot to me because they were reflecting my life back to me and you know, Baldwin and Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison and I think we, we in a way we we you know children first come to see know themselves by reflection that you have to see yourself and they allowed me to see myself and um, and I took a lot of lessons from them talking about learning to write. I mean, um, when Baldwin was struggling to finish his first book, which he said he thought he would never finish, which I thought I would never finish this one, uh, he said he went away to um, Switzerland because he said he couldn't finish it here. And you know the way Baldwin talks. And there were white faces and white mountains and, you know. That's how Baldwin talks. Um, that's, that's my best Baldwin. And uh, he, uh, he said he took one Bessie Smith album. He said he never let himself listen to Bessie Smith in America. But there he would listen to Bessie because he was trying to remember how he must have spoken as a child before he learned to hate himself. And I saw that was so powerful, and I so I, I now very often I'll play music because he, Baldwin told me to play music. Is that's how he learned? So I'll play music while I'm while I'm writing from a you know if it, if I'm writing about a period, I'll play music from the period that I'm writing, hoping that it'll help to jog something, help me to remember something, help me to remember the way I sound, 
separate and apart from the way other people sound. That the beat and the cadence of my life shows up in my writing, that it is not uh, me emulating someone, but a truth both in what I'm saying, but in the way that I am saying it. And, and imagining that I am speaking to one of the people who I grew up with and trying to explain it to them. Yeah. I would advise everybody to read uh, Mr. Blow's autobiography. It's a must read. I wanted to ask you why you decided to make your first book your autobiography and what were you hoping that people would get out of that book? It's a very easy question. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the hardest question. It is, it is, it is like the question that recurs all the time, right? Um, I'm not sure that I decided so much as it kind of settled on me. I mean, I, I started writing just as writing um, what I thought would be short essay scenes for my life that I might sell to a magazine, but I never got around to actually selling them to magazines and never got around to develop, developing them as actual essays. Um, and um, and then it kind of grew into something larger. I mean, I think I separate this into two answers. On the one hand, there is just a literary impulse. Uh, it, you know, it's a question that is more suited for the essayist than the memoirist. You know, Maya Angelou used to have this great saying that the bird doesn't sing because it has an answer. The bird sings because it has a song. And that you have to, you, part of writing memoir is that you just have a story that you want to get out. And, and the marketing of it becomes the publisher's responsibility and whether or not they like it and think it's, it has a market and what, how they would frame it. But I think that what the question often is, is asking is the sociological component. Um, and in, in that way, I think that there, is, there are themes that I think it touches, that my life naturally touches, that I am very happy that it touches, and, and that I think make it worthwhile on a, from a sociological standpoint. And, um, you know, in, in 2009, there were two little boys who, uh, they were both 11 years old. And they had both endured like years and years and years of homophobic taunting. And they both hanged themselves 10 days apart from each other. And they didn't know each other. These didn't seem to be copycat uh, suicides. And one, you know, the kid was, one kid was here in Boston. His name was uh, Carl. And another was in Atlanta. His name was Jaheem. And, you know, Carl looked a lot like me as at that age. And I just thought, this can't, this can't be, you know, it can't be that much pain and sorrow in the world. It can't be that many cycles of it. And I think, I thought, I know that pain. I know what it is like to entertain ideations of suicide at a very young age. And, and although children may not have the language to write about that level of pain and sorrow, I do. And maybe my story can be instructive for both the, 
the children who have suffered this and also the people who love them. And that maybe becomes a good sociological reason to write my story. Um, and I also saw it from the other side, which is that I'm a parent. And I just could not and still cannot fathom the incredible sorrow that must attend the idea that you call a child to dinner and they don't come and you have to walk into their room and cut down the lifeless body of an 11 year old. Um, so I, in a way, the book becomes their suicide note and their swan song. Yes. <laughs> well, I don't have a factual basis for this question. I assume that poor people don't buy the New York Times. So who is your audience that you write to? And how do you go about measuring your influence with that audience? And related to that is, should the op-ed pages of any newspaper that goes online ever be under a price barrier? Oh, I don't. I can't answer that last part of that question. But however, well, the New York Times tried it. Yeah, but I just I don't. I, you know, I'm as much as I use numbers, I'm horrible with numbers. Um, but the the first part of it though is that I think that each columnist builds their own following, and the 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 kind of the democratizing effect of social media means that you can reach audiences that don't actually. Um, uh, subscribe to the New York Times and what we've learned about social media is that particularly African Americans are kind of more active in that space than anyone else and so I always imagine that the people who you know the people that I grew up with are actually reading that and in fact the feedback that I get particularly on social media I'm very active on social media is that they are. Um, there is even a phenomenon, that, you know, black Twitter, you know, <laughs> that, that is a separate, is a powerful separate entity. Um, and there is a marketplace for uh, ideas around issues that I care about that reaches that group. And they may not read other parts of the New York Times, but, but I think, you know, they, they're reading I've developed my own audience in that way. Um, and I think every columnist, if you, if you survive at it, you develop your own audiences. And I don't, I'm not even sure that these audiences overlap much. You, you, I mean, we come to columnists, we, we were attracted to them because they are voices. They are voices that more often than not um, teach us something, say something to us, relate to us in a way that um, that is meaningful in a personal, uh, intimate level for us. So, you know, um, it becomes an individual act. And so I think people can read me and not necessarily read the other columnists and vice versa. Uh, do you ever see yourself in the future running for public office governor? <laughs> <laughs> Not with this on the shelves. <laughs> well, you know, that, that, that is really a, an issue. I mean, when you wrote this book, uh, you must have been aware that it was a, you know, you were going to either or 
you were not going to be as intimate and as disclosing of the things that happened to you and so forth as, as you were. Um, how hard a decision was that or was it, was it just an automatic? Um, I think that the moment that you decide that memoir is the form that you're going to write, then you have to, you're, you know, if you're in for an inch, you're in for a yard. Like, there is no, unless you're a celebrity, of course, you can write, um, say nothing and you can uh, get away with it. But the rest of us, you have to write the whole of it. And I think that that is the kind of unspoken um, bargain that we have with the reader, is that uh, we're giving the whole of it. And I think that, that the readers actually can pick up on in memoir when you're holding back or when you're not being completely forced right and that that harms the book. Um, so, you know, yes, I, I always knew that I was going to write memoir from the moment that I started actually writing a book. Um, and uh, that it was going to say everything that this book says, did sometimes, you know, that make me say, oh, my life is over? Yes. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but I kept writing it anyway, because I figured that this was something that I, I had a moral obligation to both to write it um, for those boys, um, and that and I had a moral obligation to confront fear and, and make sure that it had no dominion in my life. That every, that I've tried to live my life in, an, in a kind of non-ending pursuit of courage. Um, it's, so it's not that I don't feel fear, it's just that whenever I sense it, I try to charge at it and, and vanquish it. And, uh, to me, that becomes the honorable pursuit. And the very fact that I was feeling some trepidation about writing it meant that I had to write it, was my logic. Uh, I see that uh, you have 115K followers on Twitter, more than me to Marcellus. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, well, that's a marker. <laughs> uh, how, how, do you, how do you use social media? I don't know if you have Facebook account. Yeah. But do you see it as an extension of your private sphere sharing becoming more private or extension of your columns? Because the more columnists like yourself have more and more and more followers, I think the importance of being a guide for, for, for the well, generation is becoming important. Well, I mean, first, 115 is like tiny compared to other columnists, by the way. So I'm just like in the poor man's corner in terms of followers on Twitter. Uh, however, um, I use it a, a number of ways. First, I use it as like uh, a writer's notebook. So I will just post things there, just thoughts as they occur to me. Um, um, and I will sometimes come back to those thoughts. Very often, if you, if you follow my Twitter feed closely and then you follow the column that comes after, some of those quotes, some of those lines are in the column. Or maybe it's a combination of these, because like, I'm up in the middle of the night and I'll like have a burst of Twitter activity. It's just me kind of free associating things. Um, I also use it as kind of a, a, a wall to pin things so that I'll put links and things that I'm in, that something interests me and I'll say, oh look, this is really interesting and what do you guys think about this? 
and I'll pin it. But it's also a way for me to pin that link so that I can go back through my own Twitter feed and find the things that I thought were interesting two days ago. Um, another way that I use it is that uh, as is like a crowdsourcing editing platform. Um, I publish. Uh, I will announce that my column is now available tonight. The, tomorrow's column is available tonight. What do you think? Uh, people will read, and they say, "Well, there's a there's a typo in the third graph." If they tell me that before midnight, I can still change it. So I do. And I'll say, "Thank you, Eagle Eyes." You know, and I'll call my editor and say, "There's a typo." Um, so that's very helpful. And also people can help direct you to things that you're not thinking about. Um, I first became aware of Trayvon Martin because people on Twitter kept saying, are you gonna write about this kid or not? And I didn't know who he was. And it just, the, the stream of that name kept showing up, showing up and people kept saying, are you gonna write, are you gonna write, are you gonna write? And I just Googled the name and I said, oh, this is interesting. Um, so all of those, things for me. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't think of it as like an extension of the column per se. It's a whole different sort of writing. Um, you know, it is, it's quote friendly, but, but kind of narrative unfriendly. Um, so I don't think of it as that extension. I think that you learn to write at different levels that, you know, Twitter is for your smaller ideas, Facebook's slightly bigger idea, the column, you know, blog post is a even bigger idea and the column is, you know, voice of God idea, that sort of thing. Um, so I've learned to write into different, on different levels for different spaces. Question. Uh, let me ask uh, a final one then. Mm -hmm. um, when you do look at the future, what do you expect? You're 44 years old. You're yes. a young man. Do you expect to be doing this when you're 64 years old? Do you expect to be doing something else? And let me tell you quite seriously. I mean, Bill's question was not facetious. I think you could easily become governor of Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the only state that you could become governor of, but I think that's... I, I don't have enough one-liners. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that's... So goes Cambridge. No place else goes. <laughs> Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I do not think about it. Um, I, I was actually having this conversation with Nick Kristoff, um, before our books came out. Our books came out on the same day, by the way. This was weird. Um, and, and we were talking, he was talking about the future and it was on his mind. I was, I'd gone into his office and he says, you know, and he was, he was saying the same thing. Like, are you, like, how do you think about this? Like, I'm. Right, ten years older you so I could probably I'm probably going to retire from this place, but are you gonna like are you gonna retire from here? I have no idea. I don't know if I you can I, I know columnists are like Supreme Court justices that so you they die, they don't quit. Um, but twenty, thirty more years of this, I don't know that I have that much stamina and I don't know if anyone will have that much stomach for the same voice. Uh, for that long, um, I, uh, so I don't. I have no clue. What else interests you? What kind of 
questions are these? <laughs> <laughs> Think of me as a CIA. <laughs> I know. Am I strapped to this thing? There are no yes or no answers to these questions. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, first of all, I really did enjoy writing the book, although I have no clue what I would write next, which gives me all sorts of agita. But um, it was like, you know, like the kid playing with box crayons. Like, I could, my, my day job that had to do was very serious, and this was just, it was fun. And, you know, I could, you know, it was character studies and, you know, describing rooms and people's faces, you know. I don't know if you can do that over and over and over again, but I love that. And Given your visual sense, have you any interest in movies and in creating television show or to do a kind of uh, things like that? I don't, I, I, this, this is how I've lived my life, right? So you do whatever you're doing 150% and then things come along. So I'm just going to do this thing 150%. And then maybe something else will come along because I cannot, I don't have the imagination to be able to figure out what the next thing would be. Well, I think that it's fair to say we'll be standing by. Okay. <laughs> Charles, thank you so much. Yeah.